Now, some huge news has finally come out with the YNW Melly case. And this could actually really help YNW Melly in the long run, and could potentially even be let free soon due to this. YNW Melly is still out here battling his court case for his freedom. And honestly, things were looking very concerning for Melly, but now with this new information coming out, it seems as if YNW Melly and his lawyers are now making moves for an early release. Make sure you guys watch until the end, as we have so much to cover. Now, allegedly, YNW Melly has been making some huge moves in his case for an early release. I am pretty sure everybody watching this video has most likely heard that there was this small video clip found of YNW Melly a few years ago basically admitting to doing this act towards his two best friends, YNW Juvie and YNW Sack Chaser. Now in this little video clip found of YNW Melly, he does say this and I quote, There's no regret for the stuff I did for that man to pass. And then according to the description of the video, YNW Melly then put a pen to his head as if it was some sort of you-know-what item. You could probably imagine what I'm talking about. Now, you would think that that would be it for YNW Melly. You would think with the courtroom having this alleged video that that would be it for YNW Melly and that he's basically done and over with. Well, YNW Melly, yeah, he practically just snitched on himself in this court case. But surprisingly, that video clip evidence may not be usable against him in court. And this will be absolutely huge if this happens. Now allegedly, YNW Melly and his lawyer is trying to make the video of him basically snitching on himself unusable in court, as it can be taken out of context and the video could have been used for entertainment purposes to promote his song M On My Mind, one of his biggest if not his biggest song ever released. Now, if this does end up working, and they are able to make this little piece of evidence unusable, I do strongly believe YNW Melly will be free soon. And one of the things they're backing this up with is when that little video clip was found, that is actually when that song was released apparently. Now, this is alleged, and I just want to make sure that's clear, but apparently that's when that song came out when this video clip was recorded. And that video clip could have been used as little entertainment purposes for that song to be promoted on his social medias. Now, the guy that YNW Melly was also locked up with at the time otherwise known as YNW Borland, 
has actually already been released. YNW Melly and Bortland were locked up at the same time for this court case. And Bortland is currently out right now. He's actually trying to make a music career for himself at this very moment. And I do believe that the law is holding YNW Melly in lockup due to this one video clip that they found of YNW Melly admitting to doing this. But some even more great news for YNW Melly is that the law enforcement apparently doesn't even exactly have strong evidence on Melly. They don't have the firearm that was used, which means that there is no fingerprints, and there's also no fingerprints of YNW Melly's anywhere near YNW Juvie and YNW Sack Chaser. The only fingerprints of YNW Melly that was found is actually on his own seat in the car of where they were sitting on the day it all happened. And there's actually no witnesses or street cameras that captured or witnessed the incident all going down. So the only thing that the law enforcement has currently are these photos that I'm about to share on screen. And this is basically shows the car that they were all driving when this all went down. And I'm gonna break it all down for you right now. Make sure you continue watching. So to go over the evidence, the first few pieces of evidence that will actually make sense is if you know a little bit of the backstory. So YNW Melly ended up going out for a drive with YNW Juvie, YNW Bortland, and YNW Sack Chaser. The entire team of YNW, it was nothing too out of the ordinary of them all driving together, so that is a pretty good thing. So in this first photo that you can see, it actually shows where everybody was in the uh, event that that is advantageous to their position. So, this is subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell. That is one of the initial topics that you will cover in civil procedure. Some of your professors may begin with subject matter jurisdiction. I begin with the next topic, which is personal jurisdiction. So I'm going to talk about that right now. Personal jurisdiction also relates to where can this lawsuit be brought. So we've talked about federal versus state court, a very important initial determination. But we haven't talked about geographically which federal court we're talking about. Are we talking about a federal court in Tennessee, Vermont, etc. Where is this going to go? Personal jurisdiction is an important limitation on your choices in that regard. You can only bring this lawsuit in a court that would have jurisdiction over the defendant. So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the topic of the lawsuit, over the subject of the suit. But you also have to have jurisdiction over the defendant or the defendants, if there are many defendants. Personal jurisdiction rules lay that out. 
So here we have a situation where there's a plaintiff from New York and a defendant from Texas. What courts might have jurisdiction over this dispute? Well, one easy one that you'll learn about is Texas. Because the defendant is from Texas, you can sue them in Texas for anything. I'm from Virginia. Anyone who has a legal dispute with me can come to Virginia and sue me here because I'm a citizen of Virginia. Again, you'll learn what it means to be a citizen of a place. You're not just a citizen of a place because you're physically located there. There's other things, subjective and objective, that go into that determination that you'll learn about. So, Texas courts could hear this case. They would have jurisdiction. Would New York courts have jurisdiction over this case? Well, the defendant's not a citizen of New York. The plaintiff is, as you'll learn. It doesn't matter that the plaintiff is a citizen of the state in question. That's not going to render the defendant subject to jurisdiction there. Uh, that doesn't mean this case can't be litigated there. Under what circumstances might this case be litigated in New York and in a way that there will be jurisdiction over the defendant? If the car accident happened in New York, if the car accident happened in New York, then you can sue the defendant in New York regardless of where they're from. Same thing if we were talking about Wyoming. Can this case be brought in Wyoming? Well, not based on the citizenship of the defendant, but if the car accident occurred in Wyoming, then we don't have a problem. It can be litigated there. So personal jurisdiction is going to be based in part on citizenship, but mostly what you're going to be studying is the circumstances under which jurisdiction is based on the incident and the defendant's connection with the state through the dispute or through what happened that gave rise to the dispute, something we call specific jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction is something that is a very important initial determination that has to be made before you can select a court where you're going to litigate a case. Now, personal jurisdiction is not the end of the where. We're still dealing with this where question. Federal versus state, we've already determined that. Personal jurisdiction, I've given you some sense of that. There's another requirement, and this is called venue. Now, you would think we've done enough to figure this out. All right, I've got to federal court. Now I know I can go to Texas because the person's from Texas. That's not good enough. Why not? Because if we're in federal court, there are four districts in Texas. Texas has four federal districts. New York has four federal districts. California has four federal districts. Virginia has two federal districts. Some states only have one district, like Delaware, Maryland. So venue is based on congressionally enacted statutes, and that tells us which district among all of the 94 federal district courts we can use to bring this case. So I may have personal jurisdiction throughout Texas over this person, but I need to know which district to go to. We're talking about an individual defendant here who's from Texas. We would need to know which part of Texas he is from. Taking Virginia as an example, 
I live here in Charlottesville. This is in the Western District of Virginia. So if someone wants to sue me in federal court, there's citizenship in Virginia. So Virginia state courts and federal courts would have personal jurisdiction over me throughout Virginia. But if this person brought the lawsuit against me in Richmond does, but if you get through discovery and say, there's only evidence in support of this version of the story, there is no evidence in support of the other version, then you move for summary judgment. You say, I don't need a trial. I win right now on the facts and the law. And the court can resolve it without there being a jury. The vast majority of cases are not resolved by trials, even though that's what is visualized in the popular media. That's less than 2% of the cases are resolved in the federal system through trial. Most are resolved on pre-trial, what most people call technicalities, but the things that we've been describing, as you're going to see, especially as attorneys, are not technicalities. They're not technicalities if you're the defense lawyer. It's the way you can win for your client without getting into the merits. And you may not want to get into the merits if you have a client who did what they're being alleged of doing. But using all of these procedural maneuvers is the main mechanism that defense attorneys use to dispose of cases. And it's very effective because plaintiffs, lawyers, make mistakes. So if you're going to be a plaintiff's lawyer, you need to master these things so you're not making those mistakes. You get it right to the right place so your defense attorney is not going to have any choice but responding on the merits. So that's why this is, these aren't just technicalities. They're very important to master. So that's summary judgment. If summary judgment doesn't happen, then you go to a trial. I don't cover trials in civil procedure. Some professors do. The main way that trials are discussed in the civil procedure context is about the jury trial right. So the trial part of civil procedure, to the extent that you cover it at all, is not going to deal with trial practice or trial advocacy. That's its own course you'll take in the later years if you're interested in that. This deals with, well, when do I have a right to a jury and when do I not have a right to a jury? How big does a jury have to be? How do we pick a jury, jury verdicts, instructing a, a jury, challenging the, the verdict of a jury? Those are things uh, that deal, uh, are covered in the trial part. Then you have post-trial motions. And these are places where you can say, uh, we've had this trial. I presented my evidence, the plaintiff presented their evidence in front of the jury, but the plaintiff didn't really prove its case. So I should win. You shouldn't even give it to the jury. That's judgment for as a matter of law. Or the jury comes back with a verdict, and it's ridiculous. The jury says, yeah, the plaintiff was right, but instead of $100,000, we are going to give them a dollar. Well, if the evidence that they accepted shows that the damages are much more, the judge can say, well, that shocks the conscience, to use the language uh, in the case law, a dollar is not an appropriate amount, so I'm going to order a new trial. We're going to have a new trial and start this over. So you can have new trials, uh, you can have relief from judgment. There's all these different post-trial motions that you can lodge after a trial has happened. Then you have an appeal, and everyone should be familiar with the concept of an appeal. 
All right, now we're done with the trial court. So I want to take this up to the next level, to the circuit court, and raise different errors uh, that, were, uh, uh, that occurred in the trial court and see what happens. You don't go to the appeal to relitigate the facts. The jury has already made its determination on the facts. Couple final issues after appeal. You've got enforcement. Most of us, I don't think, cover enforcement. I don't cover enforcement of judgments in civil procedure. But once you have a judgment, it's not self-executing unless the defendant voluntarily says here. But if the defendant is resistant or they, are, they have assets in different places in different jurisdictions that are hard to reach, you're going to have to initiate a new action to try to collect on the judgment. So that would be a separate enforcement action. The final topic, which most of us cover, is called preclusion. And preclusion, I alluded to it earlier, and that is the binding effect of a prior judgment on a future case. So let's say in this situation, the defendant doesn't do this. They don't sue the, defend the plaintiff on a counterclaim for $50,000. Okay, well then, the defendant wins, plaintiff loses, plaintiff collects nothing. Now the defendant later wants to come out and say, okay, I'm going to go to court now, and I'm going to sue you. So this is case one, and this is case number two. Defendant won in the first case but sought no affirmative relief, so that the defendant does not have to pay this. Well, now I'm going to sue you in state court for $50,000. Can the defendant do that? The answer is no. This is preclusion doctrine. This is claim preclusion, or something that you'll learn is called race judicata. And that means you are asserting and the relief that you are seeking. And then there's rules about what level of detail is involved in that. If you don't have enough information, you can get a response that suggests, well, this complaint is too vague. I can't respond to this. Or it says something that really isn't unlawful, uh, so you haven't stated a claim. So the rules regarding what must be in a complaint are very important to understand. And just as an aside, when I keep mentioning rules, you'll learn about this body of rules called the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So I started talking about statutes earlier, and those were enacted by Congress. But there's a separate set of rules that are promulgated by the Supreme Court, ultimately, through a series of rulemaking committees that govern the procedure in the federal courts, in addition to these statutes. And so these rules that I'm referring to that deal with the pleadings, these were statutes that dealt with this up here. Personal jurisdiction is mostly a matter of constitutional law. Venue and transfer is statutory law. Choice of law is federal common law. The Supreme Court has given us that doctrine. And then pleadings, we start to get into the federal rules, and that's dealing mainly with Rule 8. Now, when we're talking about the pleadings, as I mentioned, you start out with a complaint. But then the question is, well, what happens next? So I file this complaint. 
filed it. What do I have to do with it? I can't just file it in federal court and expect things to start happening. Of course, you have to serve it on the opponent or the other uh, defendants that you are facing. So you'd have to do service of process. Service of process is governed by Rule 4. Some professors may cover service of process, some may not. I focus on service of process principally in the advanced civil procedure course, although I do touch very briefly on the basics of achieving service of process. So you've drafted this complaint, now you've served it, then the question is, how does the other person respond? Well, they can respond in one of two ways. They can do motions, or they can file what's called an answer. Or they can do both. They can file a motion. If those motions are denied, then they move to, then they file an answer. So let's talk about the motions first. The motions that you raise, which can be pre we usually refer to these as pre-answer motions. These can be filed to raise the kinds of challenges that I was discussing earlier. So, if you have a complaint filed and served on you in a court without jurisdiction, this is your opportunity to raise that defect. To say in response, there's no subject matter jurisdiction. You've sued me in federal court, but we're both from Texas. And this is based on state law negligence. So there's no basis for federal jurisdiction. The case should be dismissed. That would be a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction under Rule 12b-1, which you will learn about. So Rule 12b has this series of seven defenses that you can raise. So 12b-2 is the motion that says, you've sued me in federal court in this state, but this court doesn't have personal jurisdiction over me. I'm not from here, and this accident didn't happen here. So I have no connection with the state. Why are we here? Motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. 12b-3, motion to dismiss for improper venue. You sued me in the Eastern District of Virginia, but we're supposed to be in the Western District of Virginia. 12b-3, motion to dismiss for improper venue. Then when we get into b4 and b5, now you're challenging service of process. You sent this complaint to me as an attachment to an email. Is that an appropriate method of service? It depends on the circumstances. The rules don't provide for that, but perhaps we were served internationally and this was pursuant to a judicial order that email service was appropriate. You don't have enough facts to know. But generally speaking, under the federal rules, email notice is not going to be sufficient. So if you have a ground for saying that you have served me in a way that's not permitted by the rules or in a way that's unconstitutional and due process governs the scope of uh, permissible service of process, you can move to dismiss the case for improper service of process. A big one relating to the sufficiency of the complaint so now we've just attacked service of process. A 12b-6 attacks the sufficiency of the complaint. And it can do this in one of several ways. One traditional way is that 
Everything that you say in the complaint, let's assume the defendant is saying this, let's assume that everything that you said in the complaint happened. I'm not disputing the facts. But the problem with that is... I'm attorney Neil Schaus. If you've been charged with a drug-related offense here in Las Vegas or anywhere in Nevada, we invite you to come in, tell us what happened, let's look at all of the evidence, let's see what we can do to get the charges reduced or dismissed. And you'll be safe. Now, because it's card-specific, let's say that you have two credit cards. One's a $1,000 credit limit, and the other's 5000 credit limit. Okay. The way the credit algorithm works is if you are maxing out, let's say your $1,000 credit card and you've got 800 bucks on it, but over here on your $5,000 credit card, you only got 50 bucks on it. You got 1% on this one, but over here you have 80%, right? Because you have 800 out of 1,000. Okay. Now combined total, Right, if you took the average, your average is only going to be 40%. Two credit cards, one's basically at zero, the other is at 80% maxed out. So you're at a 40% average. Still bad, but it doesn't work on average. It works on card specific. So each card is making impact your credit score. What you want to do is start with the, cre the credit limit that has the lowest credit limit. Okay, so as you're writing down the statement dates, right, your card, Capital One, Discover, Barclays, whatever your credit cards are, and you have your statement date next to each one of them, okay, also write down your balance right in that next line. What is the balance? What do you owe on each one of those? And then what you're going to do is you're going to start with the lowest credit limit. This is called a snowball effect. This is how you go get momentum. Making that first payment, bringing it down to 2%. Remember, I talk about 2% utilization. So let's say we've got three credit cards, right? We've got that 1,000. We got a 5,000. We got 10,000. You're going to start with a 1,000. You owe 800 bucks on that card. You're at 80% utilization. You, your only focus is to get that credit card down to 2%. You need to get it down to 20 bucks. That is your only goal. And trust me, when this happens, if you time it, because you remember, you're making your payment before the statement date. So when that card reports, it's going to immediately raise your credit score dramatically. So even if your average, you're looking at credit card and you're like, my average is 28% utilization because you have multiple credit cards and it's spread between, it is making impact per card, not the average. So you'll see that once you get that lowest one paid off down to 2%, don't pay it off completely. $1,000 credit card, you want it down to 20 bucks, okay? That's what I want you to focus on, getting it down to 2%. Once you get momentum, you get that thing paid off, down to 2%, move up to the $5,000 card. Get that down to 2%. And then move up to the $10,000 card. Move that down to 2%. And then you're going to see your score is going to dramatically increase, right? Payment history is 35%. The biggest contributor to your credit score is going to be your payment history. Now. What does payment history mean? Payment history means you guys paying your bills on top, okay? A credit card, a car, a house, a loan is not going to be late until it becomes day 31. If your due date, for example, is the 7th of the month, okay? You don't make your payment till the 10th. It's not going to go in your credit report. 
Okay, just because your payment was due on the 7th and you made the payment on the 10th, now you may have a $30 late payment, but it's not going to report until the following 8th of the month. So your payment's due on the 7th, and you're like, man, I, I, I did, I, whatever happened, boom, 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 and you don't pay it till the 30th, 23 days later, still not going to go in your credit report. It's only going to report 31 days late. When you're 31 days after the payment due date, that's when it hits the credit report. Okay, and that's what you want to avoid because late payments are going to make the biggest impact on your credit score negatively. Okay, now we have late payments. Okay, if you're looking at the high impact and you're like, okay, Mike, I'm looking at my high impact and I've got my payment history is at 97% and uh, my utilization is at 80%. Okay, and I've got three derogatories. Okay, what are some things you could do? Well, just use the same formula go through the credit cards find out your statement dates on each one of them, get the first credit card, the lowest credit limit down to 2%. It's the first thing you want to do, okay? Now, collections and late payments and charge-offs are the other high impact. So what are some things we can do? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that you have two options. According to the FCRA 1970, 1970, they say that you, as a consumer, can challenge anything that you feel is unfair, incorrect, obsolete, or erroneous on your credit report. So now you're like, okay, cool. I can do it myself. Option one. Option two is you can hire a company to do this for you. And option three is you can hire a badass to do it for you, right? And the reason I say that is because, you know, Johnny's trunk credit repair who promises you the world or you use a company, right? I'm not going to trash any companies here, but you use a monthly company. NRS Section 616D regulates workers' compensation fraud here in the state of Nevada. And workers' compensation fraud can encompass a wide array of activity, including claimants who can be prosecuted for providing false information in relation to a claim for workers' compensation. That could include false information about whether or not an injury occurred during the scope or outside the scope of your employment. It could include exaggerating a claim, exaggerating an injury. It could include continuing to receive workers' compensation benefits when in truth and fact you've obtained employment elsewhere. It could also include staging a fake accident in order to make yourself eligible for workers' compensation benefits. Employers can also be prosecuted for workers' compensation fraud when they either deduct money from an employee's salary that's designated to go to workers' comp and they don't pay it, or they fail to deduct uh, money when they're required by law to do so. Additionally, employers can be prosecuted for failure to provide required documentation to workers' compensation authorities when requested to do so. Workers' compensation fraud here in the state of Nevada can be prosecuted as a misdemeanor with a penalty of up to six months in jail or as a felony with up to five years in state prison. 
The key to a successful defense in a workers' compensation fraud case is early intervention. We want to get in there right away because what law enforcement agents are going to want to do is they're going to want you to sit down and talk with them. They're going to try to get you to incriminate yourself and they're going to try to build a case so they can make your life as difficult as possible. That's why it's really important that you get lawyers involved so that we can step in. We want to negotiate with the authorities. If we can come up with uh, an amount of restitution, often we can settle with the prosecutorial agency without the filing of charges or with a dismissal of charges if they have already been filed. Typically speaking, um, if, if a case is dismissed, Altogether, it can be, uh, we can start or initiate a record seal right away. If the person was convicted on a misdemeanor, typically there's a period of two years where you have to wait before you can get the record sealed. If it's a DUI or domestic violence charge, it's seven years. And on felony charges, it can be longer, but you can still obtain a record seal, even for felonies and gross misdemeanors in the state of Nevada. I'm attorney Michael Becker of the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been arrested in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702 Defense. We'd be happy to talk to you about your case. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Nevada has concealed carry reciprocity with about 30 states. This means that if you have a current invalid CCW permit from one of those states, you may lawfully carry a concealed handgun in Nevada. For a list of the states that Nevada has reciprocity with, refer to the description beneath this video. When people with a reciprocal state CCW permit move to Nevada, their out-of-state permits remain valid for only 60 days into their Nevada residency. So new residents should apply for a Nevada CCW permit as soon as possible after moving to avoid a gap in their gun rights. Under NRS 202.350 is a category C felony in Nevada to carry a concealed weapon without a current and valid CCW permit. The penalties include one to five years in the Nevada State Prison, and the judge can impose a fine of up to $10,000. But if you have a current invalid CCW permit, and you simply forgot to bring it with you while you're carrying a concealed firearm, then you face only a civil fine of $25. If you've been arrested, call my legal team at 702 Defense, the attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything possible to get your charges reduced or dismissed. Tool I use to put trackers in my car, hum device, my Verizon, I put that in there and I can be able to track, know the speed of how far the, uh, how fast the car is going, I can know exactly where the car is, I can put geofencing on my car so if somebody leaves the city, I get a notification. Oh, Crazy. Wow. There'll be people here, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm five minutes away. Check the tracker. They're still in Alabama. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're, a you're a liar. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
Anytime somebody goes 90 or 100 miles per hour, I get a notification. I'll send them an automatic text. You know what I'm saying? I know you enjoying the car right now, but we have a fee. Slow down, man. If, if you don't slow down. <laughs> right. It's for your protection because you can get hurt. So you can hurt somebody else. And most importantly, you might hurt the business yeah. and yourself. Right. So um, I explain that through the tracking system. So um, once I put the trackers in the cars, I realized that wasn't enough. Super Bowl. Super mm-hmm. Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl is the day that you make your most revenue when you're renting out cars, vehicles, anything. How did you know that? Because you're new to the game. Because I know anytime somebody travels, they need a, they need two things. That's they need a place to stay and a car, a car to rent. So Super Bowl, I'm ready to bang. It was so crazy that um, one of these CBS reached out to me on Instagram. They saw my listing. They saw that I had most like all these cars on on Turo, and they also saw on Airbnb. I had a bunch of units on Airbnb. They reached out to me for an interview. To Did you me. have more than three at this point? No, I had, I had three at this point. Just three. Okay, I literally had three. So they interviewed me. Um, they interviewed me and said, how are you going to, how are you, because they saw my prices too, because they, they saw that my prices were almost double what they usually are. Mm. So their segment was about price gouging. <laughs> you fell right into the yeah, trap. Yeah, here's the thing. Right? <laughs> they, they, I was like, they didn't have to get me, because I know how to explain myself. I know how right. to justify where people say, oh, I didn't think about it like that. That's actually what happened. Right. So she was asking me all these questions. I was like, well, you know. Supply and demand when there's an extra 10, 20, 30,000 people coming to the city, the demand just rose, right. but the supply is, is, is lessened. So the only way to offset the difference between that supply and demand is to raise the, the cost. Yeah. Right? And that's actually what happened. And so I explained mm. that. They interviewed me. I got that picture on my on a video on my Instagram page. Right? And right before the Super Bowl, I said, all right, I'm going to need another car. They got me a Corvette. Same situation. I went to Ford Hennessy, found a used 2016 red, beautiful Corvette with only 8,000 miles on it. Yeah. I think it was about $46,000. I didn't have to put nothing down because my credit, again, was good. And how's your credit good with all these cars? And yeah, first so, of all, how do you get all yeah, these cars? Yeah, bro? so, yeah. Oh, on see? one man's credit. See? So, one... Typically, it's not an issue when you have the income to back it up. So they check your income. So if your income, but the thing is, if you have all this income, why don't you just put more down? That's right. what or why don't you just buy the car? I was like, yeah, I can, but I don't want to. Right. They're not really investigating that much, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, these dealers, they want to sell a car. Mm-hmm. But of course, on my report, I have t- three cars, Right. So usually a lender is not going to want to lend somebody who has three cars on the, what you need a fourth car for. No, high risk, we're not going to give you the money. Here's what happened. My Maserati got damaged, right? It got into an accident. That's a long story, but I'm going to make it simple. My Maserati got damaged, it got totaled out. So Ally paid me the check. By who... How did it get told around? You drove you it? Sure? Or? You sure? All right. You say it wasn't me. It was a runner. Mm-hmm. It was a very influential runner. The person might actually end up seeing this, but <laughs> I'm not mad. We, we're cool. We're super right, cool. Sure. We still do business together. It's part of the business. Yeah. Total the car. I put the claim on, on it. 
and um, they they pay me out for it. But here's the thing: as I'm buying the new car, it's still on my credit. Gotcha. I still, so I told the dealers, tell the banks that it's been paid off, and they asked, okay, show proof. All I gave was show proof that it's going to be paid off, and they gave me another car, which is a Corvette. Oh wow! But here's the crazy part. And when that when that Maserati got in the accident, the insurance just pays it out. It pays it out. So you're not under hell. No, I'm not taking uh, no ill. Yep. Um, so the crazy part was now I need my another car. I need more cars as possible before Super Bowl hits. Mm-hmm. So I get my Corvette from Hennessy Ford, and right before Super Bowl, I think it was like two days before Super Bowl, I check my tracker. I asked my boy, Brother Dion, everybody know Chief Dion yeah. on Instagram. I said, Dion, hey, can you check on the Corvette for me? I have it parked in front of one of my townhouses. He said, cool, I'll, I'll drive up there. He calls me back. You sure that you left it here? Because the car's not here. Corvette's not there. I checked the tracker. The tracker shows that the car is not where I parked it, and the gas is on E, parked like two blocks down the street. Crazy. Right now, I'm kind of scared, but I'm like, at the same time, like, well, at least I know the car. Did you forget that you parked there? No, no, no. I know for sure somebody. And captured him. They say, we have no proof that he was arrested, but they say they arrested him. This guy was able to do all of that. And he came back with not a hair out of place. He was able. He, he was able to be taken in alive. I mean, it's a miracle how they did it, because you know normally they kill and they shoot you seventy. They shoot you seven hundred times. Kill, just kill, just over, they overkill. But somehow, they managed to have restraint. They figured it out. They preserved life. Nobody got shot. They gave the suspect multiple opportunities to kill them. The suspect even warned them, hey, I'm capable of killing you. I said, I'll kill you. They gave him opportunities to kill him because you know how they say, oh, you got a split second to respond and you got to do what you got to do, you know, because we're trying to make it back home. Well, they actually gave the suspect opportunities to not allow them to make it back home. I mean, they gave him that. And they got through it anyway. It was absolutely incredible to watch them work. I mean, like, man, this is this is textbook police work right here. I mean, this is top-notch academy. Damn. Maybe they can teach the other cops, the white cops specifically, because the black cops don't go around gunning down black folks or any folks. Uh, somehow the black people, the black cops, don't just go around killing unarmed people. Somehow the black cops, maybe the black cops get trained at a different academy. I don't know. It's some, I can't put my hand on it. 
but the data is not coming back right. What's up, Thomas Sin? Yeah, the data is it, just, it's something they figured out, man. They, they, they had it right. Uh, kudos to their teachers, their instructors, uh, and them for uh, following, uh, following their training. Like, man, they did that. It was absolutely unbelievable. So we're going to talk about that in about 30 minutes. We're going to talk about that on Willie D Live channel. You don't want to miss it, fam. I'm going all the way in. All the way in. I'm just getting warmed up right now. I'm just getting warmed up. So 30 minutes, fam. Give me 30 minutes. I'm going to be on the Willie D Live channel. If you're on YouTube right now, I mean, if you're on uh, Facebook, you can click the link in the description and um, it'll take you to the Willie D Live channel on YouTube and you can just uh, click that button and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe. You want to make sure you get all of. You want to make sure you get all of your um, your notifications when you when you subscribe. Make sure you select all notifications. Otherwise, you may not get any. The only notifications you're gonna get from me is when I drop a new video. That's it. I don't send out notifications for nothing else. So, click that bell and select all notifications. Otherwise, you may not get any. James, who is this? James Martin. Appreciate you, James Martin. Yeah. So, fam, get your comments ready. It's about to go down. 30 minutes. It's about to go down on the Willie D Live channel on YouTube, all right? Until then, fam, no more talk. Now, there are also regulations against other type of animal fights, for example, cockfighting. And a first-time conviction for running a cockfight is a gross misdemeanor that carries up to 364 days in jail. A second time offense is a category E felony with up to four years in state prison. And a third time offense is a category D felony with up to four years in the state prison. Stop doing drugs. And the judge will be like, fuck, this guy's just, he's unsupervisable. Like, we can't get him to behave. And they'll say, you know what, all right, we're just going to take you off paper. It's just a waste of time at this point. Well, I had actually thought about doing that. I thought, you know, if I would, would if I get out, violate, go straight back to prison, I'll go back for a year or so, and I could 
get them to quash my paper. The problem with that is that that won't work with someone who has restitution. If you have a massive amount of restitution, they'll just put you back on paper. They're not going to quash your paper because you're unsupervisable. Now, I know several guys who've done it. Um, for instance, John Boziak, which is a guy I wrote a story about. And uh, he's going to be in a couple of the, uh, of the grind uh, vlogs. And uh, he just did uh, Concrete and uh, MSCS Media. And um, I'm going to do a podcast with him. And just a bunch of stuff's going on with him. He actually violated, went back to prison, and they quashed his paper. I think he had like a year or two worth of uh, supervised release. He got out. He, he got in trouble again. They grabbed him. Um, he never got charged, but he knew inter just interaction with the police can get you violated. Now, they didn't charge him, but he was afraid that he might get charged, so he took off on the run. And um, when they caught up with him and he went back from the judge, the judge said, look, I'm going to, you know, you're going to get like six months and I'm just going to quash your paper. You're, you're unsupervisable. We keep catching, you keep taking off and getting caught here and caught there. And you're just, you're just not going to behave. So they quashed his paper. And I know lots of guys that have come back to prison, like I'll see them leave, they come back and they're like, yeah, man, it's great. I'm coming back for six months, but when I get out, I'm done with paper. So it's not going to work with me. Um, and here's the thing about being on papers. A lot of people don't understand is that you don't really have the same rights as everybody else anymore. Your probation officer can, 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 basically violate you for any reason at all. I can be violated for anything. If I'm caught, um, let's say, hanging out with a, a felon, they can, they can if, if I don't have permission to be around that person, they can violate me, send me back to jail for a year, 18 months. I know a guy who was hiding money, like he was paying his restitution, but he was hiding money. They violated him, he got 18 months. Um, I know a guy, I know about four guys, but I'll give you one example. There was this guy, uh, a black guy, super nice guy. He'd been in jail for like 10 years for a, a drug conspiracy. Well, then he got out. He was in Florida. He got out and he got caught in a vehicle. Like it was an SUV, uh, some SUV, he got, they got pulled over. He was in the car with three other guys that were felons. All of them had been arrested for drugs. The car was searched. And when the police searched the car, they found, uh, they found like 30000 in cash. So finding $30,000 in cash is not illegal. Um... But what the cops did was they didn't charge anybody. They just said, you know, okay, well, we're going to notify your probation officer. So they notified his probation officer. He went back in front of the judge. Probation officer said, listen, the guy was one, out of the jurisdiction. Two, he was hanging out with three other felons, which he's not supposed to be doing. 
and they were all had drug convictions and $30,000 was found inside of the vehicle. He hasn't been charged with anything. But they used that to go ahead and violate him and they, they gave him, I think they gave him like about 18 months, might have been 12 months, but I think they gave him 18 months and they said, when you get out, we're gonna quash your paper. But the fact of the matter is, he had to go back to prison for a year to 18 months. Just because he happened to be in the car with three other guys. Now look, they were probably doing the, a drug deal or something and he just didn't get caught. Okay, I know, I know that. The judge knows that. The point is, is that they can use pretty much anything. For instance, if I got into a vehicle and the car got pulled over and it was searched, and let's say there was a gun, the guy with me had a gun. One, as a, being a, a felon, hanging out with someone that has a, a weapon, unless that person is willing to say the weapon is his, and I have, didn't even know the weapon was there, I could get charged with something called constructive possession, which means I had constructive possession of a weapon. I didn't have the weapon, but they can allude to the fact or basically tell the judge or the jury, whatever, that he had the gun for me. Like that was really my gun or I told him to carry a gun because I couldn't have it. Like guys will have their girlfriend go get a gun and keep it in her purse, but really that's their gun. You can get three to five years for that as a felon. You don't even have to have the gun. The point is, is that if I got into a car, some guy got pulled over, that guy had a gun, the police officer knows I'm on federal probation because it's going to come up and he notifies my probation officer, my probation officer are unclear of what this exactly means, but Reese was held on no bond. Academics at the time this occurred thought that this arrest had something to do with his previous arrest, and maybe thought that Lil Reese didn't follow the rules the judge gave him in order to be released. Now this seems like a pretty good theory, but as I stated before, Lou Reese was acquitted of his previous charges back in 2015, so it couldn't be that. Anyways, Reese was eventually released a few days later. It's once again unknown how this case played out. Lou Reese's seventh and final arrest took place in May 2018, after the Chicago Police Department and FBI Task Force raided Reese's apartment in the South Loop of Chicago. It was unknown what Lil Reese did for the authorities to obtain a search warrant, but during the raid, agents recovered over $2,200 worth of kush, a digital scale, and a bundle of cash. Reports never stated how much money the Fed seized from Lil Reese. But he later revealed in an interview with DJ Academics that one of the FBI agents who raided his place was former NFL player Charles Tillman, who joined the FBI training program in 2016 after he retired from the NFL. Charles Tillman, according to Lil Reese, is the one who seized the money from him which was reportedly $100,000. After the feds made this discovery, 
They arrested Reese and booked him on felony drug charges. A year later, it was revealed in court that prosecutors offered to lower the felony charge to a misdemeanor if Reese pleaded guilty and did one year of probation. Though Reese would also have to pay a $584 fine, Reese obviously accepted this offer and pled guilty. Lou Reese hasn't been arrested since, and I hope it continues to stay that way. That's all I have for today. I'm out. Like, this shit just doesn't fucking jive, dude. This, and you know what I mean? But here I am. Trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. or Well, you know, we had, we had already had my son together, and I knew he's mine for sure. <clears throat> and, you know, I still love her. And even to this day, I still love her. I still love her to death. And we're still married. Even though I haven't talked to her in months, and we've been separated for four years. I haven't mm. seen her in four years in, um, since Nebraska. So this, this whole thing went down in Nebraska, and, you know, our kids get taken away. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and I have a warrant out for my arrest. Mm-hmm. Because I just took off from after all this shit just happened down here in, in Florida. Let me get some water. Shit's getting wild. I'm parched. Yeah, now I'm... I'm because yeah keep in mind by this point i'm i'm stunned with the with the book right the book's been written yeah we're into book number two now yeah 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 Yeah, like i said this whole this whole whole nother situation and um yeah so you know the cops they get involved and i got a warrant out for my arrest so i'm like fuck dude what the fuck you know what i mean i'm in my head i'm like dude this bitch just fucked me you know what i mean like i came out here to fucking chill and you fucked me because you're an idiot. You know what I mean? So the fucking police get involved and, you know, sure enough, they finally figure out who I am and they mm-hmm. run my name. And they came to the house to get me one morning. And <clears throat> this is the whole thing. Let me tell you this story. So, okay, so these, these cops show up. The gummies wore off. Yeah, I was now it's all say, coming to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> pulling teeth before. It's like, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, so I'm working. I'm working at this little machine shop um, next door to the house in, in this in, in this small town in Nebraska. And I'm over there at work, and I see two I see two sheriffs' uh, cars roll up to my house, and I already knew what time it was. So I call my wife. And I, and I was right next door. I'm like, like the police were outside. I'm going to jail. She's like, what, where? I'm like, they're outside the house. She's like, okay, just stay over there. And I was like, listen, if they know where I live, they know where I work. <clears throat> you know what I mean? He lives here. He works there. It's not very fucking hard. Mm-hmm. So I remember what happened. I think they left. She told them I wasn't there and they left. And then they drove around the back of the shop. And then, so I leave the front door of the shop and I walk into the house and I'm fucking hiding inside the house. And, like, the, the cops are, like, surrounding the house now. Now they know I have a warrant out for my arrest. They know who I am. They're there to fucking take me to jail. They got the whole fucking house surrounded, dude. They're beating on the door. They got flashlights in the windows. My wife's not. My wife's out there just arguing with them on the front lawn. Like, he's not here. My wife, my wife, bless her heart, she's five foot even, 120 pounds, and she's Cuban and her English isn't, you know what I mean? Not, not like ours. You can tell she's not a native, you know what I mean? So she's out there arguing with them. They finally come in the house. They finally find me in the basement. I'm inside of a cabinet. 
I'm hiding inside of a fucking cabinet inside of the basement. I can hear them all walking around the house for like an hour searching for me. I'm not coming wow. out. I'm not coming out, motherfuckers. You guys are going to have to come down here and find me. Hide and seek, motherfuckers. You know what I mean? You're it. <laughs> you dig what I'm saying? So I'm in the basement. I'm inside of a cabinet. And I'm, I'm small, so I can curl up in a ball. And they pull open the cabinet door, and he shines the light in there. And I just stay still. And he closes the cabinet. And he was like, and they were going to walk away. And then I heard, I heard, I heard the footsteps stop. And then I heard somebody say something real low. He saw you. Yeah. I heard him say somebody real low. And then they fucking yank open the cab. They got the tasers on me. They got two of them with tasers on me. I'm like, fuck. And they're like, come out your hands up. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to crawl out of this fucking cabinet, dude. And he just grabs my arm. They yank me out of the fucking cabinet. Dude, I come outside. I'm getting arrested. My wife is fighting the police. She's physically fighting the police in the mm, front yard. God bless her. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. Like, all right. She's going ham for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's fucking going ham. She's yeah. screaming. She's fighting the police. She gets arrested. They arrest us both right there. Take us both to jail. Yeah. Our kids were already taken away. They were in, like, a fucking foster care or whatever like that. We both go to jail. Uh, yeah, so this was November of 2015. Is when I started this little journey. Is when I when I got arrested and, and we both went to jail and everything. I didn't get to South Carolina because I had to go back and see my judge in South Carolina because that's where my warrant was out of. I had a federal warrant out of the Southern District of Southern Carolina, North Northern District of Southern Carolina. What's up? This your boy, Big Man. You already know what it is, man. So let's get right to it. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about YFN Lucci. Now, YFN Lucci just got into the news lately because of something not related to his other court case. Now, what I mean is he was sued by a rapper, him and PMB Rock to be exact, man. Now, the last time we checked in with YFN Lucci... He had just been released from jail after being charged with murder and a couple of other charges involving a shooting that took place in Atlanta, man. It was a real wild situation, and it's gone kind of quiet, man, because, you know, the folks, they were basically coming for wife and Lucci, and they got him. He was arrested. I did several videos. They dropped a 911 call that led to, the, to his arrest. They also, man... Posted the fact that he was out on bond. It was a whole bunch of stuff going on with YF and Lucci last month. Or even, should I say, the month before that. Now, the last we heard of him, he got out. And now we're going to be talking about this court case. Now, in the court case, it looks like him and PMB Rock were being accused of taking somebody's song for their hit, Every Day We Lit. Now, YF and Lucci... And his camp has yet to say anything about this situation. But PNB rocking them got taken to court. And I'm going to tell you how it went. Not in their favor. Now, before we get into the specifics, do me a favor. Make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And man, let's get it. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about this YFN Lucci PNB rock court case. Now, 
To be honest, it was more directed towards PNB Rock. Because in the story, it talks about the uh, fact that Wife and Lucci might have already made some type of separate agreement for this situation. Now, it doesn't go into any specifics, but this is the case, man. So there's a New Jersey rapper by the name of Rat Boy Cam. Now, Rat Boy Cam was suing PMB Rock and YF and Lucci, and he actually won the lawsuit. Now, the lawsuit was a copyright infringement case, and it was over the song Every Day We Lit. Now, for those of you who don't know, YF and Lucci Man was on a tear for a while. He had a whole bunch of hit songs that came out, man. And Every Day We Lit was one of them. Now, it was featuring a Philadelphia rapper by the name of PMB Rock. Now, a lot of you might not be, you know, up on game about PMB Rock, even though he's pretty significant in the hip hop game around that time frame. You know what I mean? He's gone a little quiet since then. But, you know, during that time, he was really, really lit out here, man. No pun intended. Now, in this lawsuit, it was saying that PNB Rock and and the producer, June James, had stolen from this New Jersey rapper, Rack Boy. Now, Rack Boy had a song called Everything Be Lit. Now, just off the name, you could tell they're similar. Now, when I listened to both songs, I mean, I kind of heard what was familiar between the two, man, you know, the similarities, but it looks like, man, my opinion doesn't matter because a judge, I mean, basically awarded uh, Rack Boy $1.7 million in a judgment, man. Now, this is what it says in a complex article in the news. It basically says this. It says, in 2018 lawsuit, in a 2018 lawsuit, excuse me, Rack Boy argued that the song Every Day We Lit, on which the three aforementioned artists were featured, is deeply similar to his effort, Everything Be Lit. Earlier this month, Rack Boy's lawyer, Christopher W. Nero, secured a significant copyright infringement victory that netted his client over $1.7 million. Since an agreement was already reached with wife and Lucy, like we said earlier, and think it's a game records. The judgment was made against PMB Rock and the song's producer, June James. Now, this gets really interesting because it, the way that they split it up. So basically, in the judgment, they said this. He got... Over $1.4 million in cash, or he was granted $1.4 million in cash, and close to $268,000 in, prejudge, in prejudgment interest. So a running, and a running royalty, plus costs, and injunction against James and Allen's exploitation of the infringing work. Man, that sounds like they threw the book at PNB Rock in them, man. Because... That, yeah, that counts up to about $1.7 million. But then the running royalty and all that, and the interest, man, that's, that's crazy, man. So dude took to social media, and a lot of people have been talking about this, right? I've seen Say Cheese posted earlier. I've seen a lot of different news sources posted. I think Complex News is the closest to this situation. But it looks like... Healthcare providers are under increased scrutiny here in the state of Nevada, particularly in Las Vegas, 
after the prosecution of Dr. Desai, who was using cost-cutting measures that led to uh, hepatitis being spread in his office. On Monday, the jury in the hepatitis C outbreak trial returned a verdict against Dr. Depak Desai and nurse anesthetist Ronald Lakeman. Desai was found guilty on all counts, including second-degree murder, and Lakeman was found guilty on 16 counts related to the outbreak. So it's reasonable to say that healthcare providers can expect additional scrutiny in their office because there's a lot of public outcry with regard to uh, news that's come out of the healthcare industry here in Clark County. NRS section 422 defines healthcare fraud. And healthcare fraud can encompass many things such as taking kickbacks from patients to prescribe medication or taking kickbacks to refer to certain doctors. It can also include billing patients for procedures that were unnecessary or procedures that were never actually provided by the physician. Uh, healthcare fraud can also uh, include charging excessive fees for, for procedures. Uh, again, based on events that have occurred in the community, law enforcement agents are much more aggressive now in scrutinizing the actions both of doctors and uh, other personnel in medical care offices. Here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we represent a wide variety of people who may get caught up in a healthcare fraud investigation, including doctors, office personnel, and even patients. There are so many different people that may work in the office of a medical care provider. If you're under investigation, it could be that you have no knowledge of practices that are going on uh, at the hands of others in your office. It could be that people in your office may be doing billing, that you have no awareness that in fact there's some false billing going on. So the earlier that our law office gets involved in the process, the greater chance that we have of preventing suspicion from turning into prosecution. Matthew is with us in Santa Barbara, California. Hey, Matthew, how are you? I'm doing great, Mr. Ramsey. How are you doing? Better than I deserve, sir. How can I help? Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Um, I am a, yeah, I'm 18, and I've been following your principles for a long time. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I learned them from my parents, and uh, you know, so I've never had a credit card, so I'm a little bit concerned about how to go about renting once I get out of college, um, because I know a lot of people won't rent to someone with no credit score. Well, there's two types of landlords. Um... There are ones that are what we would call a corporate landlord, meaning an apartment complex maybe that is owned by a real estate investment trust and it's professionally managed by a management company that manages 27 apartment complexes all over California or something like that. Those kinds of people are going to be very rigid 
and are going to expect to see something like a credit score. They're, that manager of that apartment complex is not allowed to think for themselves. They're dictated by their corporate office a set of guidelines, okay? You may not be okay. able to rent there, but here's what the irony is. I'm a multimillionaire, and I couldn't rent there. Yeah. I can buy the complex, but I couldn't rent there. You know, that's the irony of this ridiculous conversation. So Exactly. Um, so that just means that I can't do business with them. There's some people I can't do business with today because they won't do something with me because I don't have a FICO score. And that's okay. That's okay. That's their decision to run their business. But my decision is, is I'm not going to go into debt just to get to play footsie with them. So, but you can rent to a landlord uh, of some kind that is able or willing to think for themselves. So let's kind of think about this. Pretend for a second you were a landlord, all right? And you had a guy come up. I mean, the way you were raised, let's say you owned a house and you were renting it, and you had a guy come up who's 22 years old and wants to rent the house. He has a fabulous credit score, two car payments, a credit card payment, and two student loans. Okay? Or you have another guy standing there who has no credit score and no debt. And let's pretend they have a job making about the same money. Well, if I'm the landlord, I think the guy with no debt and no credit score is a better has a better chance of paying my rent because he doesn't have payments coming out his ears. And so as a landlord that's able to th- actually think and not just follow corporate policy, I'm more likely to rent to you than I am your doofus friend who's gone into debt to build up his credit score. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and you don't even have to be a, like a Dave Ramsey acolyte to think that way. You just are using good critical thinking skills and going, uh, people that don't have payments can pay better. Huh? Hello? You know what I mean? It's really dumb, right? So... Yeah, you know that's that's what you got to do. Is so you you know you knock on the door and this sweet little couple comes out that's retired and they rent, have a rental house and they're going to show it to you and you go, well, I just graduated from college. I don't believe in borrowing money. I don't have a credit score. But what that really means to you is is that I'm able to pay the bill because I don't have any payments except this one. So it's really good for you that I don't have a credit score. And they go, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And that kind of person will rent to you all day long. And they might be a manager in an apartment complex. They might be just that sweet little rental ca- ca- retired couple that has a couple rental properties, or a, somebody like me, you know, that has a bunch of rental properties. And I just use critical thinking skills. I, you know, we do look at people's credit, but we do not rent based on a lack of credit score unless it's more we're more likely to rent based on a lack of a credit score. Because a lack of a credit score at all means you don't have debt. It's the only way to have no credit score. And not having debt means you have money if you have a job. It's a pretty simple formula for me as a landlord. So that's how you look at it. But, yeah, there's going to be some people who turn you down. But, the, again, dude, they turn me down. 
And, and you know, my net worth is tens of millions of dollars, and it's just stupid. You know, it's just the stupid world we live in. Marijuana in his hotel room. Chief Keefe told TMZ his side of the story, which he claimed happened like this. So, me and my homie Trey Savage was in the hotel room chilling when some fat-ass security guards started knocking on the door talking about how we needed to fix a water leak. So, his ass walked in and started looking around at us and immediately gave me the racist look and then started talking shit to me. I told him, I thought you was here to fix a water leak, which he obviously lied because there was no water leaking. Then he immediately started talking shit to us. He told me that he was going to call the police on me, so I called him a bitch. He kept saying how the police about to be on the way to lock me up, so I blew smoke in his face and pulled out 30 racks and said, I got the bond money. There's more where this came from. Keefe says he felt the security guard was racist from the moment he walked in the room. When TMZ asked if the chief was smoking weed in the hotel room, his response was this. As for what I was smoking in the room, everyone needs to listen to my song with Uncle Roe, All I Smoke Is Gas. The next day, Sosa tweeted this to his fans to let him know he was free. Just got out of DeKalb County Jail in Atlanta, mad as f***. There's no update on what happened later in that case, but we can probably assume that the charges were dismissed. Sosa's next arrest happened on May 29, 2013, just days after his arrest in Atlanta. During the early morning hours, the chief was caught going 110 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone while riding in his BMW X6 on the Edens Expressway in Northfield, Chicago. When the police asked Mr. Keefe the simple question, did you know your car was going 110 miles per hour, the chief gave them the iconic response of, well, it's a fast car, that's why I bought it. In the end, Chief Keefe was taken away in cuffs and was cited with going twice over the posted speed limit and for violating stipulations on his driver's permit. Less than a month later, Chief Keefe was ordered back into court for a speeding incident on the 29th. At sentencing, the 17-year-old rap legend pled guilty to doing 110 miles per hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone and was given 18 months of probation, 60 hours of community service, random drug tests, 8 hours of traffic school, and a $531 fine. The chief was now free to leave, but as he left the Skokie courthouse, police arrested him once again on a misdemeanor trespassing charge. The chief was then rebooked and re-released moments later. Now, after spending the summer as a law-abiding citizen, Chief Keefe turned himself in on October 15, 2013 to the Cook County authorities after testing positive for marijuana. The judge sentenced the chief to 20 days in county jail and was released on November 8, 2013. On his way out of jail, Chief Keefe was notified that one of his conditions to get out required going to rehab for his weed problems. So, the chief did just that, and immediately flew to beautiful Los Angeles, California, and checked himself into rehab. After spending a couple of months in rehab, Chief Keefe was free to return home to his mansion in Chicago. Almost immediately after returning home, the chief went back to his old ways and began chiefing on that good Southside Chicago Kush like nothing ever happened. 
But that didn't last for too long because on March 5th, 2014, less than two weeks after checking out of rehab, Chief Keefe was pulled over in Highland Park, Illinois, early in the morning for having expired tags on his 2010 Jeep Cherokee. When the officers approached the vehicle, they claimed it reeked of pot, and the chief allegedly admitted to smoking pot before driving. The police then made the chief do a field sobriety test, and let's just say, the chief failed. Chief Keefe was eventually charged with a DUI, driving on a suspended license, and cited for having no proof of insurance. Mr. Keefe was quickly released after posting a $300 bail. Now, you're probably assuming that his next encounter with the law will have something to do with the chief going to court for his DUI and getting sentenced, but no, that's not the case. Chief Keefe apparently had enough of Chicago and decided to skip court and move to Los Angeles. For good. Like, literally, for good. The moment Chief Keefe steps back in Chicago, he will be arrested immediately due to his warrants and due to the mayor of Chicago's ban on Keith Kozar, a.k.a. Chief Keefe. Now, this sounds bad, but it was honestly one of the best decisions Chief Keefe has ever made. Since his move to Los Angeles, Chief Keefe has stayed out of trouble for almost three years with zero run-ins with the law. But his hot streak came to a tragic end after he was arrested on January 26, 2017, after the Los Angeles police raided his Tarzana mansion due to his alleged connection in the violent armed home invasion of his former music producer. Sources say that producer Ramsey the Great was robbed at gunpoint in his Devonshire home and accused Chief Keefe and friends of breaking into his home and holding them hostage with an AK-47 on January 19, 2017. Ramsey also stated that he was robbed of cash, a Rolex, and other valuables during the incident. Chief Keefe and friends later bailed themselves out and the case was ultimately thrown out in April 2019 due to Ramsey the Great getting sentenced to 10 years in prison for charges of human trafficking. Remorse now, even though they may want to do it. In, in, in your position of sitting on the bench, my question is, if somebody has pleaded not guilty and went through a trial, and I know that it's a very small percentage in your courtroom, can that person still do something to make amends and to reconcile and say, I was wrong, I wish I got this message sooner, I didn't, or does that come across to you less plausible? Yeah, and I think we've got a whole variety of folks that kind of fit into that equation, right? And I've had a trial where the guy said, I'm guilty for selling drugs, but that gun ain't mine. And so going into trial on that case by saying, I'm guilty of the drugs, I'm not guilty of the gun, then he's lost nothing in, in the credibility standpoint. There's other folks that maybe truly are innocent, and then they will have not lost anything in that situation. And I, you know, I pray to God that we don't convict innocent people, but I know that that does, if it happens once, it happens too much. And then there's other folks that 
are not at that point, and maybe you were at, the, at that stage or not, where you can't own up to it. Um, I think at any point, when somebody owns up to a problem, that's, that's better than none. If, if the person's truly guilty, if that's what we're talking about, then owning up at any time, usually it's 90 days or more between a conviction or a change of plea and sentencing. Um, that's not that long of time, but then in other situations, it's long enough to figure out, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I've done something wrong here and I'm committed to improving it. And I think most judges are really good about judging if that's a genuine apology and a genuine attempt to fix it versus I'm trying to shave a few years off my sentence. And I would agree that it's never too early and it's never too late to begin working toward a better life and working toward a, an opportunity to reconcile with society and particularly victims, what thoughts do you have on individuals who really come clean during the pre-sentence investigation report, providing a full written narrative to the probation officer that doesn't excuse their misconduct, but rather shows the influences that led that person there? Does that, when you see that at the very earliest stage, such as the pre-sentence investigation report, does that help your assessment or your deliberations over what an appropriate and fair sentence is? Yeah, it definitely does. I think it helps for a public defender or CJA counsel to be able to cite to the PSR to say, this is how it got there. You know, this person's father was never in their life. This person sold drugs at this point to get this. This person did these things and that tells the story and puts it all in context. So what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the sentencing guidelines have no reflection of humanity. It's a grid, it's a chart. And I put you on X, Y chart. On the other hand, the 3553 factors, that statute mandates I put a human face on the individual standing in front of me. And so if there's if there's things in the PSR that the lawyer can cite to and that the defendant can cite to and talk about it, you're creating your own evidence at that point. For good or for bad, you're telling your PSR writer in the probation office here's everything you need to know about me and how I got here. Um, that That is good advocacy, if nothing else. It sounds like you're reiterating what, what, I, what I heard you say at the beginning of this interview and that what Sean and I are always telling people who are reading our materials is that the most important person in the sentencing hearing is the defendant himself. He shouldn't outsource all of his remorse to the defense attorney, but rather should make the investment of time and energy to help the judge see that individual for who he is and what influences led him there. Uh, am I correct in understanding that's what you're telling us? You're correct. And I may backpedal a little bit because 
the lawyer can help put that together, right? And I, at least in my district, and I can't speak to anybody else's, I have a, a lot of respect for a public defender's office and some of our frequent flyers on the CJA panel. Um, we appoint those people. We're used to seeing them. We've developed a sense of respect and go through. Is there an age cap on state justices? We yes. talked about they had to be at least a lawyer for five or 10 years, but for state judges, is there a max age? A recent Supreme Court amendment raised that from 70 to 75. So at 75 on their 75th birthday, they have to retire. Okay, so you can't be any older than 75. Can't be any older okay. than 75. So what about federal court judges? How does it work? How does a lawyer become a federal court judge? Um, how does that process differ from state? Well, number one, the judicial nominating commissions are not required for federal judge selections. We have it in Florida, and that's because our two senators have agreed to do it that way. A lot of states, the senator on his own picks his best friend or picks somebody he knows, and he gets sent up to, for a judgeship. In Florida, we have to go through the same process as the state. They put out an advertisement saying, look, you want to be a federal judge? Apply the Judicial Nominating Commission. They're appointed by the senators if they have a senator that is of the same party as the president. If you don't, then it's a congressman. Then they interview everybody just like they do in the state court, and then they send recommendations up to the senator. The senator then picks the one person out of the recommendation they like, then that person goes to the president, and then the president has a process through the Department of Justice. They investigate, they do background checks, then the president makes an appointment, and then I'm going to shortcut it, and then goes to the United States Senate for advice and consent or approval of the appointment. Now, if you remember, I didn't mention the Florida State Senate, because in Florida, when the governor makes the appointment, that person's a judge. He does not have to go to the Florida Senate for approval. Okay, so that's a big difference. So they have to be confirmed by the United States Senate, but the state court judges, at least in Florida, don't have to be confirmed by anybody if the governor picks them. That's right. Okay. Big difference. Right. So what is the uh, tenure, as we like to say, for federal court judges? Federal court judge is a lifetime appointment. Life Appointed for a life. Anybody. Yeah. Any federal judge, lifetime and appointment. And it makes a big difference in how they act and rule on cases and how things are and how quickly they move right. things or change hearings on us yeah, right. with, you know, they don't, have, they don't have to campaign every six years. Right. They don't have to be popular. They can say, show up today. Actually, we're going to move it to next week, whether you have something right. or not. Right. Um, okay, and then what are the salaries for federal court judges? Well, a district court judge is 200, that's the basic trial court, and that's the one that I have, is $216,400. Okay, so more than state court judges. More than state okay, court judges. Okay, so federal judges, court judges yes. make more than that. So why would somebody want to be a federal court judge versus a state court judge, or why, why is there the difference in what type of people are attracted to the different positions? Well, federal judges deal with bigger cases. Um, uh, there's minimum financial cases. There's federal crimes. They just deal with a bigger case type. 
but a smaller case load. They don't have as many cases in federal court. So it's seen as a better position, right. more prestigious position. Right. Is it often that state court judges become federal court judges or just straight from lawyer to federal court judge? It happens quite a bit. Uh, in fact... Which way? What happens is that the state ones become federal. Okay. And I have never seen it go the other way. Uh, well, just recently, though, two Florida Supreme Court justices appointed by uh, Governor DeSantis, both of them got elevated to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal appellate court by Trump, within like a week of each other. So he plucked two state court judges from the Supreme Court and put them in the appellate court in the federal system. Okay, so what is the percentage, would you say, that state court judges versus just regular lawyers make the jump to federal court judge? That's what I'm asking. Oh, yeah. So, like, is yeah, it yeah. more lawyers? Is it 50-50? I would it say it's, prob it's probably a 50-50 okay. split. So it's not, it's not more common for you to take that as a stepping stone to become right. a state court judge than federal court judge. You can go just straight to federal court. Right. So if you... Does it help if you have a lot of federal court practice, if you're a federal prosecutor or whatever, getting a federal judgeship versus state? It's hard to say what really will help. Uh, for instance, Besides we politics, just, obviously, right. that's the number I one. Mean, so there's some federal judges uh, that are federal judges, but when there were uh, regular lawyers, never tried a case, yet they became federal judges. There are um, prof law professors, never tried a case, but became federal judges. Uh, you really can't say, uh, and it really goes to the whim of the president when you really so, think about it. So really, the judges that are appointed have a lot less scrutiny almost, it sounds like, than the judges that are voted on because people can look into and pick what they want the most versus just kind of one person or a group of nine people looking in and seeing if you check the boxes that they feel is important. I, 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 in my opinion... I would disagree with that. Okay. I would. I think the people selected by judicial nominating commissions are, on the average, better qualified than elections. I'm here with Premier Nevada criminal defense lawyer Michael Becker. And Michael, today I want to ask you about elder abuse laws here in Nevada. And obviously we have, uh, you know, a, a sizable senior population here. And we're seeing more and more people get arrested for elder abuse. First of all, what is the legal definition of elder abuse? Elder abuse is the commission of a crime against someone who is 60 or older. And it's divided into several categories. Abuse, neglect, isolation, and exploitation. And by exploitation, I mean that would typically be like sort of embezzling money or you know, handling grandma's accounts and kind of, you know, siphoning off money for yourself, that sort of thing. That's correct. We see those cases often. Um, the allegations are against a child or a caretaker who has access to the checkbooks or the credit cards or the ATM card, or uh, perhaps even uh, has access to the home and things come missing from the home. Now, if someone is convicted of elder abuse, what sort of penalties are they typically looking at? It would depend. Um, if there were uh, some type of neglect that did not involve injury, uh, a first offense could be a gross misdemeanor. If you had abuse 
that led to physical injury, you'd be looking at a felony. With regard to the exploitation elements, the greater the amount of money that is lost or the value of the property that is taken, the more severe the crime. So it can range anywhere from gross misdemeanor charges to felony charges. So from relatively minor charges to very serious charges where someone could potentially spend years in prison. Absolutely. Now, obviously, I mean, you know, it sounds terrible, the, the whole idea of elder abuse. And, you know, intuitively, there's nothing worse than you know, sort of harming a senior citizen. But, but as bad as that is, um, unfortunately... There are a lot of innocent people who get accused of this, and, and, and a lot of times police and prosecutors rush to judgment, and, and innocent people find themselves being charged. I mean, have you found that to be the case? I, I would agree. I mean, I think we increasingly live in a society where when bad things happen, we like to allocate blame for bad things to happen. So, for example, if uh, a child who is a caretaker goes off to the store and they come back and mom has fallen and hit her head. You know, if they don't charge you for the abuse itself and say you did it, they're, they're, they're going to say, well, well, you left her home alone and you shouldn't have done so. And therefore, you, your neglect uh, created a situation where the likelihood of injury was greater. So I do think... In this arena, elder abuse, you see a lot more charging that uh, juries ultimately find very questionable. And, and I mean, a lot of times if, if an elderly person is injured um, or, or sort of uh, not properly cared for or you know, loses, loses money, loses their nest egg, I mean, there's, it, there's, sort of, there's an outrage and there's sort of a desire to point the finger at someone, uh, but sometimes, I mean, the finger is pointed at the wrong person. That's correct. I mean, um, for example, if something is missing and the caretaker is charged for it, you know, it doesn't mean that that caretaker had exclusive access to the home or, uh, or items belonging in the home, but sometimes the assumption might be that because they had such close access, that they must have been the party involved in the exploitation of the elderly person. But the prosecutor still has to prove those charges. Uh, and usually to a jury uh, by the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you can't be convicted of elderly abuse if it's a gross uh, misdemeanor or a felony charge unless a jury unanimously agrees that you're guilty. And as a criminal defense lawyer, have you had a lot of success over the years in defending people who are charged with elder abuse? I have. Um, we've seen a lot of cases. Most of our cases involve uh, financial issues where there are allegations sometimes brought by battling children mm -hmm. who are each alleging that one that 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 you know one of the children had had uh, had taken advantage of the parents. One from, rival sibling pointing the finger at that, the other. That's right. And um, I, I believe that we've gotten very good results in those types of cases. 
I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been charged with elder abuse in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702-DEFENSE and let's hear your side of the story. Let's see what we can do to help you get your charges reduced or dismissed. Welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast. We find people who have built something sustainable. And not only people that built something, because not all people that build something can teach it or show other people how to do it. But we really try to find teachers. And today we probably have the best in the game. When it comes to teaching, teaching how to like duplicate. Your success. Mm-hmm. So, we got my brother, mm-hmm. Mr. Matty J. In the building. How you feeling? Hey, yeah. hey, 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 hey. The time is now. The time has <laughs> Don't come. Don't be arrogant, brother. Calm down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we've been well, waiting to have this interview for at least two for years. For sure. For sure. Way too long. Way too Man, long. God came Man, through with it. Just, to, just so everybody know, this is my real brother from, from church. That's like, a fact. spiritual brother. That's a fact. We're in church every Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. Keeping it holy. Yeah, absolutely. You know and the conversations aren't necessarily just like, yo, how much money you make today? No, definitely like, it's, not. It, it's, it's, it's the character hold. Yes. That's why I value this relationship Amen. most so much. Amen. Amen. Thanks to God. So for those that don't know, because we are going to get into this Carvinal game, and I'm excited to announce that I got my first vehicle. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got a 2017 Range Rover. For what? Is it is it for personal use or are we gonna use it for cash? No, we're about to get this bag. What you mean? You know, actually the the my thought was <clears throat> so I'm around you, like you might pull up in the IA Neo pulling up in the rolls, you feel me? Like, yo, everybody got these cars. I'm like I do some really amazing things, right? Um, guys afforded me to, um, you know, do some really cool things in business. Mm-hmm. And I said, if I'm going to the next level, I think maybe some people need to see it, see it and be inspired That's by it. Fact. So my thought is, I need to get one of these vehicles, bro. <laughs> but for the way that I think is, I don't want to pay for it. That's a bar. So I, I sat down with my wife and I said, yo, we need to get some really nice cars, put them on Toro mm-hmm. so we can make money mm-hmm. and be able to Access drive something them. nice when we go out. That's a fact. And, I, and, and I, I remember the conversation. First off, before I get there, introduce yourself. Before <laughs> I, I don't get too hype on this one. <laughs> What's going on, everybody who's, who's tapping in? My name is CEO Matty J. And I'm a digital real estate agent, general contractor, I buy, sell, build, flip, fix businesses online primarily. And most recently, I'm actually in the car rental space. Car rental space has been doing really nice things for me lately. It's allowing me to share information, specifically how to turn liabilities on wheels into assets making deals. Yeah, this joint is crazy. I remember we were at church, I think Sabbath just was over, and he said, yo, I'm about to put my car. No, this is a real life story. This is a real story. Two two years ago, at church, we brought it up. Yep. He's like, yo, I'm about to put, I'm about to rent out my car. And he had just got the Tesla. Yep, yep. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why would you rent out a Tesla to Your other human beings? crazy. You looked at me like I was crazy. I don't get it. 
I don't get oh, it. Oh my goodness. And I was like, yo, I'm about to get this um this this rental property. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yo, why don't you why don't you get a car and just sell the car? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, oh, bro, I remember that. First off, people don't just why would you rent out your nice car? Mm-hmm. Second. First off. And then second off, real estate is like a proven way of building wealth. Because you were investing at this time. I'm like, bro, you don't got to do all that. Just get you an Airbnb. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I, and I, I was like, yo, I got to buy a property mm-hmm. and then rent it out. He's like, yo, you don't got to do that. Yeah, and he's like, yo, we are moving into a, di- a different age. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So I, walk me through that process. Goodness gracious, man. Oh, it brought me back because I was going through a process where I'm like, dang, this works. Why isn't everybody doing it? And when I think about everybody, I first think about my closest friends. And I saw David Shins, he was actively investing. He was like investing a lot of income into this, um, the real estate property that you was doing. And I got started and I scaled really quickly. So starting off with the cars, my Tesla Model S, 2013, this was back in 2017, I believe, mm-hmm. um, was sitting there doing nothing. I live in Atlantic Station. So this is a, a an area in Midtown, Atlanta, Georgia, where everything's literally there. All the top stores, the restaurants, clothes, Publix, everything you need is there. So my car was never dri- like being driven. So I realized like, wow, I'm paying $900 a month car note plus insurance, about $1,000 for a car I'm not driving. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm a very logical person. And I'm like, yo, this doesn't make sense. And I come to find out after doing studies, reading these studies, 90% of cars that people have are sitting 90% of the time throughout the day, throughout mm-hmm. the year. So I was like, all right, let me figure this out. My boy Jacoby, shout out to Jacoby, coolest nerd ever. <laughs> he said, yo, there's a platform that you can rent out your cars um, on. 